Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Warrior Poet, where we talk about philosophy in life and business through the lens of the SEAL teams, Harvard Business School, Amazon, my experience in startups, and as a dad and someone always searching for huevos rancheros. We aim for two things on this show every episode. One is, have we made each other think? And the second one is, did we have fun? If both are not complete, then my job is not done. I'll ask one thing of everyone today, which is please approach this topic with an open mind. It has the opportunity to become flammable. And I'll warn new listeners and maybe even some old listeners, if you tend to get really angry about politics and things like diversity uh, in either direction, then maybe skip this episode. Maybe just <laughs> hop to another one. Uh, if you stick with this, then let's assume everyone is reasonable, ethical, and assume positive intent. I alluded on a previous episode about there being a religion about diversity in the workplace. So as I already put that disclaimer up front and we got that out of the way, I'll reinforce a main point here, which is it's one thing to support diversity overall. And I, like most reasonable people in society believe that respecting each other's differences and bridging those divides, especially in light of all that's going on in terms of Black Lives Matter and police brutality. So we're all on the same page that no one is being racist or sexist and that you can have reasonable disagreements about diversity and inclusion policies in the workplace. If you do a quick Google search, though, about diversity and teams, you won't find a single hit that questions the wisdom of diversity in the workplace. And when I say wisdom of diversity in the workplace, I mean, there's not a single article that poses a view that is more nuanced than you know, going all in on diversity for diversity's sake. Now, if you want in your organization to pursue diversity for diversity's sake as a moral good for society, then, then that's up to you. But all of those top hits in Google will essentially support these policies of creating more diverse teams on the basis of economic return. And there are some aspects of that that I think are at least not well-founded. There's a ton of correlation versus causation in most studies and articles, definitely the blog posts that you read, uh, even Harvard Business Review articles on the topic will uh, kind of confuse correlation with causation, even if they state <laughs> that in the article, most of the assumptions they're making and conclusions will be based on an assumption of causation. 
Now, it's worth stating at the outset an example of a place that is very homogeneous, but yet succeeds at an outsized level. And that's the SEAL teams. The SEAL teams are an extremely homogeneous group of people. That team is inordinately white, way in excess of the proportion of, of whites in the American population. They are completely male, and they fall within a tight age range generally, especially amongst those who are operating in the field. They also obviously share common training, plus the military culture outside of the SEAL culture, plus many of them are politically aligned and religiously aligned and come from common geographic areas. You don't have many SEALs coming from Manhattan or San Francisco, although even the most skeptical anti-military person would recognize the excellence in performance that is in the SEAL teams. It may surprise a lot of people to picture, to understand just how creative those teams are and how much dissent and debate occurs within each unit in the SEAL teams. There's an enormous amount of decision-making rigor that goes into every aspect of mission planning, how you train, etc. And there's an enormous appreciation for differences in terms of culture and language background when you relate to other people in the military around who aren't in the SEAL teams as well as other cultures when you're deployed. So some of the most obvious benefits of diversity that come to mind don't appear to be missing. Now, this is not a statement or a justification of an all-white SEAL teams. Granted, it's not all-white, to be fair. There are people who are Asian. There are African-Americans. Uh, there are Latinos. I'm your half-Indian guy who went through the SEAL teams. So it's not that it's all-white, and this is no justification thereof. But the point is that the SEAL teams stand out as a glaring counterexample to the need for diversity for performance benefits. And I would even go farther than that and say that most of the literature, if not all the literature, is too narrowly confined in laboratory scenarios. And the diversity that is pictured is confused with the diversity that benefits teams. Meanwhile, the startup costs of organizing a team and going and acting are grossly overlooked in the studies. So like if you get a bunch of SEALs who don't know each other and are from different coasts, even West Coast versus East Coast, and you put them in a room and tell them they need to go achieve a mission, 
they'll have some things to sort out compared to guys who've worked together for a very long time and can know each other's silhouette in the dark at a distance and know what each is going to do without communicating. It's going to take a little bit of time, but for the most part, they're going to go and achieve that mission with very little concern about doing so. You can't say that for the average group of Americans putting them in a room together. And especially that is true if you increase the diversity of that group. Meanwhile, on the long-term side, what's the cost of diversity in terms of attrition? Now, I'm not saying that there's attrition because of diversity. I mean, if there's attrition because of diversity, then you've got a sexist or a racist or some other sort of ist on your hands. But what I mean is, in an indirect sense, homogeneous environments can lead to more camaraderie and more fulfillment in the job amongst people. Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying that, you know, an all-white SEAL team would do better than an integrated <laughs> SEAL team like we have today. But there's so much commonality between an Asian SEAL and a white country boy SEAL. There's so much commonality already that they naturally get along and there's usually sort of a common personality that's filtered so we're talking about despite maybe skin color differences and geographical origin differences in the teams we're talking about again an extremely homogeneous environment and the fulfillment that guys get and presumably eventually gals get out of that environment is enormous and it's not all about the job the job is great but a big reason people stay and the thing guys miss the most is not the job it's the guys it's their brothers So when that's the case, when you have such a tight bond with people, you're much more likely to stay. And retention in the SEAL teams is very, very, very high, much higher than the rest of the military. And I'm sure much higher than your average private sector company today. So you, you will retain talent a lot more in your company that way. Just to double down on this aspect, let's say you are a very creative dude and you're really interested in, let's say, consumer products. And you end up at a company and there's a female designer. She's 10 years younger than you are, but she's also very creative and also really into consumer products. You're going to get along really well, probably. If, you, if your personalities are compatible, that obviously helps. But 
there's some shared bond there and you're likely to be tight with that person. And I've had a number of working relationships in the private sector where, you know, looks wise, identity wise, we're very different people, but I end up being very tight and have an enormously, you know, good working relationship with that person. And so the only argument I'm making is that not on an identity basis, but in terms of commonalities that you end up bonding with people very well, and then you want to stay and work with that person. And that is not the case if you just bring in diverse people for diverse sake. Like if you're that young, creative, female designer of consumer products, and then a dude comes in who's 50 and dry personality, not creative at all, super analytical, you might get along okay with that person and be able to do the work. But are you going to be tight with that person? Are you going to be friends with that person outside of work? Are you going to go grab drinks with that person? It's really unlikely, right? Really unlikely. Now, the mix of skills is beneficial. We'll talk about that a little more later in this episode. But what the studies overlook are things like trust, sacrifice, loyalty, and not having to communicate all the time, having that effectiveness of communication and a shared understanding of process, a shared understanding of what the right thing to do for a customer is. And like we've talked about a lot on this program, these relate to information and speed. Information being that lifeblood of the organization and speed of decision-making being that dominant strategy that you need to pursue at all times. I was trying to imagine what the most preposterous scenario might be here to further <laughs> illustrate my points. I was thinking about if you had a group of five, let's say, 65-year-old Asian women who like to knit and chat while they knit, and they've got a little knitting business, and their business is doing okay. It's not, this is not a, a turnaround sort of scenario. Their business is doing okay. And one of them gets the idea, well, we should really increase our diversity because I read this Harvard Business Review article that says increasing our diversity will improve our performance. And there's this guy, Scott Page, that I've heard of, and he says that it's not only a mathematical fact, but it's an empirical fact. So they decide to hire Shree and bring in <laughs> this dude who's got really strong opinions a background totally different than theirs and priorities that are totally different than theirs with a method of decision-making and a pace that's totally different from theirs. That's a lot of increase of diversity with just one person being brought in. But there's no way I'm going to help them do better. It, in any, if anything, I'll just end up getting kicked out of the group or destroying the group altogether, probably. And okay, you might say, that's ridiculous, Shree. We know you can't knit. Okay, what if, what if they bring in 
not to stereotype too much here, but what if they brought in three women, one Latina, one African-American, one white? They bring in these three women into the group. Is that going to result in a better outcome for everybody? I'm not so sure about that. Now, in some ways, my example there is unfair. And the reason is that diversity in the literature has increased gains when you increase the complexity of the problem that you're trying to solve. This is kind of intuitive probably to to most listeners, but if you have a domain of knowledge that crosses a bunch of different sectors of expertise or where you've got a problem space where you've got a lot of this kind of infinite game that we've talked about with, with Simon Sinek, where you've got just an infinite number of possibilities. Like you're trying to deliver a product that's never been delivered before. It's brand new. You've got so many choices you could make about that thing. Maybe you have a diverse customer set. Then you need to consider strongly having some diversity. But as I alluded to earlier, this is less about identity usually than it is about cognition. I think those two things can be related. Like if you are doing marketing to women and you've got an all-guy team, it's certainly going to help by having a woman there. And there's plenty of empirical research to back that up, despite perhaps what Mad Men might tell you. Again, this host would much rather watch Mad Max than Mad Men. One thing to think about here is that startup founders tend to hire their friends. They tend to hire people they've worked with before. And those people are very much likely to be like them. They've worked at the same companies. They're probably about the same age. More often than not, they're going to share some other identity factors like gender and race and national origin and geographic origin within that country and even experience level. So if diversity is a no-brainer, then why do startup founders not go out of their way to meet new people and then found a company with them? You might argue that I'm overlooking some, some logical flaws in that statement, and I, I realize I'm glossing over some things. But there is, I think, some, some justifiable food for thought there. And that probably leads us to a hypothesis, which is in smaller, earlier organizations, it might benefit us to prioritize other things than diversity, but that as organizations grow, then it makes more sense to increase diversity. Some of you who are already skeptical of diversity, even more than this host, you might be really angry with me right now, and you might be saying, well, Shri, 
of course, bigger companies can consider diversity because they're more successful and they have more cash and there's more sort of slack in the system. They've already got product market fit. They've already got resources. They've got infrastructure and they can afford some cost to diversity. But the fact is that actually, at least, again, correlation, not causation, diverse companies do, on average, do better along a number of metrics. And I used to think that they were just measuring sort of decision-making. But in actuality, if you look at the results, the financial returns do accrue more, on average, to diverse companies increasingly. Now, there is one interesting factoid that I saw, which is as gender diversity increases, the gains are less than as you increase racial diversity in the workplace. I'm not sure exactly what could explain that. The authors of the article I saw theorized that maybe it's because so many advances had been made in terms of gender diversity in the workplace, although I imagine a number of women would be really disagreeing with that. So, And also, it doesn't get at really explaining the root of the difference. Let's reboot for a second and make sure we're all on the same page. Where, where you fall on this issue, of course, Shri doesn't claim to have all the answers here. Just my food for thought. Feel free. I'd love to interact on this issue and others on Instagram and LinkedIn. But just to make sure that we're all on the same page, at least as to the, the strain of thought that I've laid out here, there's a possible issue that corporate executives simply institute diversity plans that get presented to them out of either fear, A, or B, trying to gain attention in the marketplace for their good acts, which is fine. It's the rational thing to do. It's not necessarily justified on other bases. Or C, because of a blind faith in diversity. And while diversity may have many benefits, there's a very crude application of diversity improvement in the workplace. We've already established here that there are improvements in performance that have been measured that are consistent with diversity policies and diverse workforces. But what those studies don't do, in my opinion, is explain well why diversity may be causing those things. There's a McKinsey study that I'll link in the show notes that goes into some possible answers. And some of these are probably obvious, may occur to you. I'll read them off one by one. One is winning the war for talent. Obviously, if you confine yourself to white males between 25 and 45, you're eliminating a large segment of the population. I think one thing to consider is that, you know, in, in, in an argument for 
conscientious and intentional diversity policies is that companies are likely excluding a lot of talent from their pools through unconscious biases as opposed to conscious racism or sexism. Okay, number two, it's strengthening custom orientation. The idea is that you may not understand your customers and be able to deliver a product or the marketing message sales pitch to them well, or maybe even customer service, if you do not share some of their identity. The third one is increasing employee satisfaction. This one's a little weird. It's, I think, more about increasing the satisfaction of minorities who may already be in your workforce, that then they have more people who are like them. Another one is improving decision-making. And the last one is enhancing the company's image. Each one of these factors that are laid out in that McKinsey study have real issues and in my opinion don't adequately explain the lift because the the lift in performance is not trivial so is it possible that companies that are less diverse on identity are really giving up such an immense amount of talent to get the kind of lift that's cited in the study? I don't think so. On strengthening customer orientation, obviously, if you're a makeup company or a muscle car company, then you better have some people who are of the stripe that is the same as the identity of your customer. But... Not every company has product lines and services that are so narrowly correlated with a certain identity in the population. Now, obviously, customer can be specific, but a lot of companies have a more general product line than that. And to be clear, if you're a makeup company and you're all women there, you're probably doing pretty great, but your diversity is really low. So it's just, it's really hard for me to square some of the assumptions in the McKinsey study with kind of real world examples. Increasing employee satisfaction. I don't know. Intuitively, I don't see how that's going to get you amazing improvements because there's so many other factors that impact employee satisfaction. I think a lot more than diversity. And if you've got, let's say you've got, I don't know, 20, let's say you're, you're even over-indexing compared to the population. You've got 20% African-Americans. Let's say you add 5% to that. Is that 20% of your workforce who's already there going to work that much harder and better because they're satisfied because there are now 5% of the workforce more than them in that company or which is, you know, a quarter. I, I it's just, it's, it's really hard to, to believe that that would be the case. They might be more satisfied, but I don't think that's going to have such an impact on performance. Improving decision-making, we'll come back to that one when we talk about Scott Page. 
And lastly, enhancing the company's image. I think there's a little lift you can get there, just like work for the environment, carbon offsets, things like that. But in my opinion, it's unlikely to have an enduring and really impactful gain to performance in the magnitude that you see in the data in terms of diversity leading to financial returns. Maybe diversity makes up for other things that are lacking. And these things, these qualities of your organization and the qualities of those people may be attainable in other ways, but they're so intangible or they're so hard to pick out on someone's resume and in interviews that we just use as a proxy diversity and we approach the same result. So let's say it's some sort of personality type difference, or it's a different way of making decisions, or it's a different excitement in terms of crafting a sales pitch between people. And we just, we can't nail that down. And we need all those ideas. It's going to be hard to consciously get to that mix of people or that homogeneous set of people who can lead to the optimal outcome. So we settle for identity differences because it's easy. We talked on the last episode, OK Computer, about how the law is less about principle than people think, and it's more about practicality of application. In a similar way, diversity policies based on identity are just easy to do. Not to mention, it's really hard for someone to oppose them. (laughs) This host here may be the only brave person you're going to hear around you who even poses some soft questions about the underlying rationale because no one wants to be called racist, sexist, etc. This leads to Scott Page, who talks about the diversity bonus. I'll link to his book in the show notes. In his book, Scott Page, who is a researcher out of University of Michigan, which, by the way, a lot of people don't realize how solid a school overall University of Michigan is, and especially as a business school. Scott Page clarifies Things that your average corporate executive is not even thinking about in terms of the rationale of diversity policies. And he's advocating these more than anyone else. This gets at why hopefully you're listening to this program and why I feel so passionate about doing this podcast. Because I can't help but ask why. And I'm sure you're the same way. Scott Page clarifies all the nuances that your average HR person is not going to think about when delivering a plan. And one of the biggest is that cognitive differences in the way we approach problems, our domain expertise, that those cognitive differences are much more important 
than identity differences in terms of producing this bonus to a business or other organization that Dr. Page talks about. Requires diversity. Cognitive diversity is how you think, how you represent problems, how you try and solve them, how you go about trying to make sense of something. Identity diversity is who you are, it's your, you know, your race, your gender, your religion, your ethnicity, those sorts of things. Now, those are connected in some way, in somewhat mysterious way, and they're connected in different ways for different people. But when you think about what actually generates diversity bonuses, what makes groups of people better at solving problems, it's differences in how we think. Now, it's not the case that identity diversity or cognitive diversity is going to help you on every single task. It helps you more on the more complex things are, the more high-dimensional things are, the more a problem has different ways of looking at it, the more you're going to get Meanwhile, as we've contended here a lot on The Warrior Poet, our brains are much less in the driver's seat than we think they are. A lot of times, we as humans assume that we are definitely right about something when we're not. And having diverse perspectives, even if... They're through identity differences. Maybe that's okay because it is attainable much more than discerning cognitive differences. And maybe we get some of that benefit despite the crude approach. And maybe identity differences are worth bringing into the workplace just as a moral good. I'm sure a lot of people who previously opposed this are reconsidering in light of the Black Lives Matters movement. And let's face it, a lot of us are unlikely, except in the most innovative sectors, to have a problem where you need to get that sort of classic example that Scott Page highlights where you've got a chemist, a physicist, a biologist, a mathematician, and a medical doctor all in the same room trying to solve some complex problem that happens at the intersection of, of their domains or where there can be transference of principles and lessons and models to a certain solution. Since that's unlikely, then maybe the cognitive differences don't matter that much in terms of prioritizing them. But should we give up hope in our ability to screen for that? We could do personality tests. We could do more investigation of the way people think. But I contend that we emphasize skills in interviews way too much. And we emphasize being okay at all qualities versus being awesome at one. And we prioritize conformity with the organization over that true diversity. So this leads us back to a reality where the sad irony is that those who promote diversity most of all in the workplace are actually often the culprits who oppose true and seriously impactful diversity in terms of cognitive and stylistic and experiential differences in the workplace in their other roles as, let's say, HR people or hiring managers. And I've written an article about how we prioritize being 
just okay at a lot of things on Medium. I will share that in the show notes. By the way, I would also say that educational differences and experiential differences, that they might be the most impactful things in the workplace. I love the idea of having someone who went to an Ivy League school work with someone who barely graduated high school and did a trade, but is willing to learn. I believe enormously in the human capacity to learn. And I love the beginner's mind concept. I myself have worked in a number of different industries and I've been able to see problems in novel ways that others haven't. And it would be completely self-serving to say that that's all because of who I am and what I know and not that it's at least in part due to the diversity of experiences and the range of industries that I've worked in. Maybe most of all, we're just prone to groupthink. And there's all sorts of quote-unquote pitfalls of conformity that we fall prey to in the workplace. And maybe being in a homogeneous atmosphere, despite my experience in SEAL teams, maybe that atmosphere leads to more conforming thinking over time. And perhaps adding more and more diverse people in terms of identity is a visible signal to our brains more than we could perceive through experiential or personality differences because you might not be able to see that. Maybe having that identity that's different than us in front of our face can help rewire our brains to be more tolerant, more understanding of our customers and our teammates, and more doubtful of our own wisdom. Till next time. Rainiac Productions. If you like The Warrior Poet, there's more great content on Instagram. Follow Shri, The Warrior Poet, on Instagram. That's S-R-I, The Warrior Poet. You can also get to know me on a personal level by following Shri, actually, on Instagram as well. The Warrior Poet is produced by Laddie, with special contributions by Spoonman and me, Shri.
No, 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 no. Kevin, me na dua. Spita. <laughs>